Hey guys, welcome into the Faithful to the End podcast. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. Here you'll find easy access to all of Pastor Dave's sermons and even guest speakers at Graceway Church of Michiana. At Graceway Church of Michiana, we preach expositionally through the scriptures as we feel this is most consistent with the author's original intent in writing and yields both biblically and contextually accurate interpretations. At this time, we would invite you to grab your Bibles as we dig in to the Word of God. I want you to consider with me for a moment an all-too-common attitude that Christians often display toward outsiders. Gandhi, which most of you uh, probably at some point in your life have heard of, wrote an autobiography, and in it he says during his student days, he lived in England, he studied in England, and he was deeply impacted by the message, the truth he discovered in the Gospels. He was so serious about considering uh, converting to Christianity, uh, which in in his mind, it seemed to be a a real solution to the caste system that divided his people in India. So one day he decided to go and check this out for himself. And he went to a church and he decided he's going to attend this church service. And as he went to enter the church, the ushers met him. And refused him entrance into the church. In essence, they said to him, why don't you go worship with your own people? Why don't you go worship with with the people that, that you belong to? And so he left. And he never returned. In his mind, in his way of thinking, if Christians have a caste system that's just a different kind of system than ours, well, I might as well stay a Hindu. What, what, what's the difference? And what I want you to consider for a moment is the sad fact is we have all heard stories just like that. Somebody comes to engage the church and they're treated, they're responded to like that. It's a heartbreaking story if you really contemplate it for a moment. A man who had a huge impact in his own country, and yet, while studying, longed to consider, contemplate being a believer, but was turned away by believers. I've known church members, pastors, to express a similar attitude to particular groups of people. And folks, let's be honest, sometimes those in the church, they express that kind of attitude when somebody shows up and just sits in their regular seat. Right? Yeah. Like Three of you got what I just said. You know what I mean? Somebody's in my seat. Hey, can you move? I remember that in college. Going to a church, visiting a church, and somebody walks in, they say, you're in my seat. Oh, I didn't know they were for sale. <laughs> you know? This is, this is a wrong mentality on our part, right? So we have to be careful of this. We have to guard our own hearts. And truthfully, I want you to consider for a moment, and I want us to think before we dive into this, I want to set some perspective. Because I'm going to be frank with you, I don't know that I would have preached this message, certainly not in this way, ten years ago. My my mind wasn't wasn't on this uh, path. I, I wasn't thinking this way, right? But in some respects, this text is dealing with discrimination. It's dealing with biases that whether we like it or not, every one of us has. So I want you to think for a moment. 
How do you respond? How do you view a person that you come across who maybe has a tattoo or a lot of tattoos, right? Well, what if they have multiple piercings on their body? What immediately springs to your mind? What if you're introduced to a same-sex couple? How do you respond? Uh, what about somebody you meet that, that is a cross-dresser? Maybe you meet them in the grocery store. You, you run across them there. What's your response? Inside, what happens? How do you speak or act when you're introduced to somebody, hey, get this one, with differing political views than you, right? Does your skin start to crawl? You know, you think, boy, how do you not get it? You know? What about a new family that moves into your neighborhood and they obviously have very different religious uh, preferences and background than you have? How does that immediately strike you? Ah! Oh no! The neighborhood's going down! Right? Have you been affected by, and I want you to think of this, have you been affected by elitism, exclusivism, discrimination? And truthfully, folks, it pervades our society. It does. Either inadvertently, or for some of us, maybe intentionally. We really are struggling in this area. The passage that we're going to look at declares that there is no law that should keep genuine followers of Jesus from offering the gospel freely. Folks, the truth is this. It's not that, that we're to overlook sin. But remember, as Jesus engaged people on this earth, it wasn't you're a sinner and you're disgusting. It was there's hope for you to be rescued from your sin. And folks, to be honest with you, if you are not careful, sometimes we perceive in ourselves, we're kind of above that. I've, I've never lived that life. And so I'm a little bit, I'm kind of better than you. Right? If we're honest. And what I want you to note is, and believe it or not, we're going to see this theme through Acts for the rest of the book. This is going to come up over and over and over again. Because listen carefully to me. You think racism and you think discrimination is bad in 2021, 2022, 2023. You think it's bad today? You should have lived it this time. The literal hatred that existed between Jews and Gentiles, it was amazing. And before we're done, Peter's going to acknowledge it. Peter's literally going to say, it's not lawful for me to be in a house with all you Gentiles. And we say in our minds, what? what? That doesn't even make sense. But this is the place where they are coming from. And for all of us, we need to examine in our own hearts. Do I have those biases? Do I react that way? Even if I've trained myself not to let anything come out. What's happening in here? Right? Now, as we walk through this text, what I want you to note with me today is this. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. You say, that's from Luke. Yes, you're right. Luke 19 and verse 10. Remember who's writing Acts. 
Luke, his theme in many ways, it didn't change. He's not altering from that. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, including Gentiles of all types and all nationalities. So no matter who you are today, Jesus came to save you, to rescue you. And he will, if you'll turn to him, if you'll trust him. So remember the context of Acts. This is the second book. It's the second longest book in our New Testament. The second book of Luke, the continuing story of Jesus. He reiterates that in the very first verse. This is the ongoing story of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Here we go. That continuing story happens through his followers, through believers. It's continuing today through us, believers, followers of Jesus. This chapter, if you remember, we began it last week. It starts with the conversion of Paul. Now we have the conversion of people in Lydda and in Joppa. We're going to have the conversion of Cornelius and many in his house, many in his family. That's going to be hugely significant in chapter 10. We are not going through the end of chapter 10. There's no way we'll make it, right? <laughs> There's just no way we'll make it. So we're saving Peter's sermon. And uh, the filling of the Spirit at the end of the chapter, we're saving that for communion next Sunday. So again, as we walk through this, remember this, note this, observe this, Jesus came to seek and save the lost, including Gentiles of all types and all nationalities. No matter who you are today, Jesus can save you. And I hope today that he has. If he hasn't, he can today. So first thing I want us to note together is the ministry of Peter in Lydda and in Joppa. And I want to show you where this is in a minute. Luke, he goes on from the ministry of Paul, the conversion of Paul, the beginning of Paul's ministry in many respects. He goes from that back to Peter. And from there, we're going to be looking at Peter from the middle of chapter 9 all the way into chapter 11, 12. And then we kind of make a permanent shift to Saul, Paul. He'll change his name in chapter 13 for us a little bit. Um, here, he records two things, two miracles that happened, first in Lydda, first and second in Joppa. The first one in Lydda, and this is a region uh, around Sharon. Now again, I brought you uh, a couple of pictures. First, if you remember, this is where we've been looking the last couple of weeks. This is the, the impact of the gospel in throughout the book of Acts, right? So this is where we'll get by the end, but we're beginning here in Jerusalem at the beginning. The very beginning, we're, we're in Jerusalem, then we go to Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, right? So Peter now, if we go to that second slide, Peter is moving from Jerusalem here. He goes up to Lydda. That's about 25 miles from Jerusalem. Then he goes to Joppa. Sharon, this is the region of Sharon, right? And then he's going to go up to Caesarea. Now, a couple of things are interesting. At the beginning of the year, we started a study on Jonah. Where did Jonah go when he didn't want to tell the Gentiles, when he didn't want to declare the message of God to the Gentiles? Interestingly enough, Joppa, right? And Peter goes to Joppa and spreads the message of the gospel and eventually to Caesarea and the like. So first, he goes to Lydda. In Lydda, he heals a man by the name of Ionaeus, he's been crippled for eight years. Peter, again, he tells him to get up, to rise up, to walk. 
and immediately. Again, that word immediately, he's used that a couple of times in the previous chapter, and it, it is intentionally used to say this is not something that, that there was a delay. Immediately God worked, and he was healed, and he got up and walked. Now, in response to that, there was many, many conversions in Lydda. Many people believed. Have you been converted? If you have, is it changing, as we talked about last week, the way that you live? The second, there's a disciple now down in Joppa, or up in Joppa, over in Joppa. The disciple's name is Tabitha. Now, uh, that's an Aramaic name. The Greek version of that is the name Dorcas, and she dies. Now, what's interesting is this is the only reference to a female disciple. She is called a disciple. Now, here's what's interesting. And I, and I found this interesting as I was thinking about this. If you go back to, to go back to my picture, go back to my. No, you're okay. Go back to my map. Okay. Now remember, early on we talked about Philip. Philip is down here when he meets the Ethiopian eunuch, and he takes off and he goes up through all of these villages. Remember, works his way up to Caesarea. Now think about this. Did Philip by chance come through Joppa? And Tabitha's a convert. And now doing the work as part of the body, the church in Joppa. And that's why Luke puts Philip before this account so that this account makes sense. There's already believers in Joppa. Tabitha's one of them. Dorcas is one of them. And she's doing real ministry in this city and making an impact for Jesus in this city. So much so that there's this massive outpouring from people at her death. They are mourning her collectively because of her work, because of her care for widows and everything that goes with that. And in the early, in, in, in Judaism, in their mindset, caring for widows was a fundamental act of piety. This was a fundamental way that you demonstrated your genuine commitment to the Lord. So she dies. After she dies, they go through all the ceremonial washings to cleanse her, but they don't bury her. Now, within Judaism, when somebody died, you buried them that day. Uh, if you're from the, 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 the Middle East and you live here, that's still kind of a cultural thing. If somebody passes today and they're from there, they bury them that day. It's just, it's unusual if they don't. That's just what happens. Bang! That, it's, it's quick, right? But that's not what they do with her. They actually take her and lay her in an upper room and they send for Peter. Why did they do that? We could almost argue that they are thinking in their minds, she could be raised. P Peter could raise her, right? So they send for Peter. Peter comes. He goes to the upper room. And what I want you to observe through the whole thing, if you recall, Peter was one of the three back in Luke chapter 8. And we have Jairus' daughter. She's dead. She's laying on a bed in an upper room like this. And Jesus walks in. And what's he do? He clears the room. Everybody go out. Peter comes. And what's he do? He clears the room. Everybody go out, right? And then Peter prays. And then Peter says... Tabitha, get up. Tabitha, rise up, right? Now, all of this is similar to what Peter saw Jesus do in Luke 8. 
The way that Luke records this, it's almost intended as a reminder. It's intended, uh, in a sense, Peter watched Jesus and did what Jesus did. And God raised Tabitha, just as he raised Jairus' daughter. And so he gets up and he raises her up, he helps her up, and she comes out and everybody is rejoicing. And what happens? The town of Joppa hears, and again, many believe in Jesus. Many turn. Now, in Joppa, Joppa would be different than Lydda in this. These coastal towns are much more populated by Gentiles. Lydda would have been much more Jewish in its orientation. So Joppa is much more uh, uh, populated by Gentiles, and so in a sense, we have this message spreading even here to Gentiles. But now we have an introduction in chapter 10. We have an introduction to Cornelius. Cornelius is introduced to us, and uh, Luke masterfully, I, I don't know about you, but Luke masterfully has this way of setting the background for us, and almost immediately we're, we're into this character and we know him. Uh, we kind of know his background. We kind of know where he's from. We kind of know what's going on in his life because of Luke's description. So look at what he says again at the beginning of chapter 10. So at Caesarea, we have a man. His name is Cornelius. And now he starts to tell us about him. First his name, Cornelius. Then he's a centurion. He's part of this group or part of this band, this division of the military known as the Italian cohort. Likely, that group at one point was composed of Italians. At this point, it's likely those who have volunteered more from this region, and they may be more Syrians than Italians, but they maintain that name, the Italian cohort. There's likely more than one of those, because they're referenced in other places throughout Scripture. Again, he's the centurion. He's in charge of this group, right? Okay, but not only that, we don't just know about his military. He's a devout man. He's a spiritual man. He's a God-fearing man. And his whole household, he gave alms generously to the people. He prayed continually to God. Now, again, Luke has this way at times of kind of hyperbolically stating something so that we get the point. I don't know that, that Cornelius literally just prayed all day, every day, and never did anything else. That's not so much his point as this guy was truly devout. He was truly committed to the Lord. He genuinely feared God. He genuinely longed to know God. This is who he is. This is who he is. And, and it's so much so that it's impacted his whole house. Very likely... Uh, a centurion made far more than a regular soldier. Far more. Ten. Some, some say up to 18 times what a regular soldier did. This man may have had a really significant household. And the household, they believe. Why? Because of him. Because of his influence. Because of his voice. He's so committed that one of the normal praying times, one of the normal Jewish times of prayer, would be the ninth hour, about 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And so verse 3 tells us about that ninth hour. He likely is praying, which he's going to tell us later on uh, in verse 30. I was 
praying. That's, I think, a fair guess then, right? From verse 3, he tells us that later on. So he's praying. And in the midst of praying, he has a vision. An angel of God. Note again, we've seen this throughout the book of Acts. An angel of God comes and communicates with somebody. Now remember, don't forget, prescriptive, descriptive, right? Prescriptive, you do this, this is likely going to happen to you. Descriptive, this is what happened. Not necessarily going to happen to you. Much of Acts, much of the account of Acts is that. It's descriptive. This is the supernatural way in which God is at work. Luke is just describing it. He's not prescribing. He's not saying, you need to look for visions. No, please don't do that. Please don't ever do that, right? God has spoken to us, Hebrews 1, through His Son, through the Word, right? So God is speaking to you today through the Word, not visions. Look carefully at Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. He says that. God formally spoke this way. Today He speaks through the Word, right? That's why it's so important that we know, understand the Word, right? That's why we try and do a deep dive every single week, morning and evening. Why? You need the Word. I need the Word. So that's how God is speaking today. But He spoke to Cornelius through this vision. The angel comes to him and he says, here's what you're going to do. Simon Peter's going to come, but you've got to send some guys to go get him. Send some men to Joppa Ask Simon Peter to come back. And so Cornelius calls a couple of his men, a couple of his trusted guys, three, and he says, hey guys, here's what God just said to me. So this wasn't foreign to them. It wasn't as if they said, well, you've never talked about God before. What are you talking about? No, this was, this was regular for them. They understood this. And so he tells them what happened. He says, now, go down to Joppa, and you saw it on the map, go down to Joppa and get Peter. He stand with a guy named Simon the Tanner. He lives by the sea. Go get Peter and bring him back. Now, a couple of things are interesting. Number one, a tanner in the first century was somebody by trade that worked with dead animal carcasses. So, by its very nature, a tanner is an unclean job. Uh, a strict Pharisee would never have even entered the home of a tanner. Now, Peter is not a strict Pharisee. Peter is a fisherman. Peter is now an apostle. And so he stays with this guy. So the ceremonial laws, in some respects, are already not being quite honored as the Pharisees would have honored them. Right? That's first. Second. Again, note, Joppa is the place where Jonah flees so he doesn't have to spread the good news to the Gentiles. It's now the place where Peter is staying as he goes to declare the good news to the Gentiles. I mean, think about this. The Bible has these beautiful ironies and connections at times that only God can do, right? So this is the relevant question for us. Before we move to Peter's vision, relevant question for you. How do you respond to the word? When God speaks, how do you respond? And folks, that is always a relevant question for us. What do you do with the word when the Bible is open, whether it's personally for you, privately, or publicly in a corporate setting like this? What do you do with the word? 
Are you open? Are you listening? Folks, it's one thing to sit in a service and say, that's really good. It's an entirely different thing to go out and for what we address to impact the way we act, live. That's the purpose of the word is to change the way that we live. Is that happening in your life? What I find fascinating is Cornelius at this point is not a believer. And yet look at his response to the word. He sees a vision and he does exactly what God says to him in the vision. And for some of us, we might say, well, if I saw a vision, I'd do what it said. Would you? Really? Would you? I mean, in truth, God has supernaturally given us 66 books from over 40 writers. It all works together. It all makes sense. God has spoken to you pretty clearly in the word. What do you do with that? Are you yielding to the word? We must. So now we transition third to the vision of Peter. Peter goes up. It's around lunchtime. At least it is in America mindset, right? For the Jews in this uh, time, they actually would eat a large meal in the late afternoon. But Peter, I think historically, actually was a fairly significant, stout, big guy. Not fat, big, strong. And um, so, so he's hungry. He is famished. He goes up on the roof. And in some ways, the 12 o'clock, the sixth hour of the day, that's not a standard Jewish time for prayer. So in some ways, what Luke is doing is, is setting for us kind of the piety the, the commitment of Peter to the Lord. He goes up and prays, not because it's time, but just because that's his relationship with God. As he's praying, he's hungry, they're making him something, and as they're making him something, interestingly enough, you know, is, is something wafting up from the kitchen, and all of a sudden, Peter has this vision about animals. You know what I'm saying? Well, uh, some commentators try and make that connection, and I do think it's interesting. He has a dream about food while he's waiting for lunch. I don't know about you. Have you ever had that? Some of you have that every Sunday morning, right? You know what I mean? You're dreaming about food because you're thinking about lunch. But anyways, he has this vision. The vision is a sheet. A sheet comes down. Now, as I told you at the beginning of the book... Some of these descriptions, Luke is describing it the only way he knows how to describe it to us. The same as the flaming tongues of fire in chapter 2. How do you describe such a thing? Well, as best you can. You use the words you got, you, you try and make sense of it. So we don't know exactly what this looked like. What we know is this. There's all kinds of animals on there. And there's two kinds. Specifically for this account, there's two kinds that matter. Number one, there are clean animals on that sheet. What clean animals means is in Leviticus 11, God gives very clear instructions as to what you can eat and what you cannot eat. What you can touch and what you can not touch, right? If you are a committed Jew, if you're committed to being a faithful follower of God, these are the animals you cannot touch. So we have those on the sheet. We also have the ones who are forbidden on the sheet. Those are unclean animals. Now, it's imperative for us to understand something. If I have a clean animal and it comes in contact with an unclean animal, guess what happens to the clean animal? It's not clean anymore. It's now unclean, right? 
So if I have a clean one, comes in contact with one that's not, can't use it either. It's now unclean. And there's a whole process of making that thing clean, or there is for us. I don't know if you can do that with an animal, right? So once it's unclean, you can't touch it. So there's two issues with this sheet when it comes down. Number one, there's unclean animals on there. Number two, even if Peter's going to eat one of the clean animals, guess what? They're now unclean because they're on the sheet with the unclean animals, right? There's nothing there. Peter can't touch anything there. It's all off limits. Now, to make this more concerning, a voice says, rise, get up, Peter, and kill something on the sheet and eat it. And Peter, Peter says, no, absolutely not. And as we read this, I, I tried to make the point, Peter is saying this emphatically. This is an emphatically negative response by Peter. Peter is considering the presence of the unclean animals with the clean ones. This is untouchable for me, and I will not do it. I never have, and I'm not starting today. Now remember, this is all a vision. Very real, right? It's very, very real. But this is all a vision, and there's much more that we could discuss with that. We'll, we'll hit some of that in the Q&A. So, God responds again. Now this time, in the second response, God says something very, very, very important that will come back up. Look at verse 15. And the voice came again, and God says, or this time the voice says, What God has made clean, do not call common. What God has declared to be clean, what God has made clean, don't call common. Luke says, tells us this happened three times. And what happened with Peter every time? Emphatic no. Emphatic no. Emphatic no. Emphatic no. Here's the truth. Peter here is a superb church member. You realize what he's saying to God? We have never done it that way before. And we're not starting today. Right? That's exactly where Peter is. That's not what we do. That is not what we do, and I'm not doing it today. I mean, imagine this for Peter. This is how he's grown up. This is what he's been told. This is what he thinks. This is what's in his head. And here's this voice, obviously from God. Get up and kill something and eat it. No, 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 no. No, I will not do that. Now, a couple things are significant. Number one, it's interesting to note that Peter is not set in any kind of angelic or wonderful divine light here. God literally comes to him and says, do this. And Peter says, nope, not doing it. And Peter didn't do that once. He did it three times. God comes again. He says, don't call something I've made clean. Don't, don't call it common. Don't call it unclean. Peter says, nope, not eating it. No, 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 no. Now, that's significant in this sense. And it's important for us to grasp this. For all of us, there are at times hurdles, they're hard. There are at times, there are biases for us, they're hard. Listen to me, that doesn't excuse not obeying. 
And what I want you to observe by the end is that Peter comes to understand and responds. He obeys. He does exactly what God's called him to do. Now, before we move on, I want you to think for a moment. Uh, uh, This is usually my habit, more so than keeping it a surprise and surprising you at the end, right? So, So my habit is to give you the spoiler ahead of time so the rest of this account kind of makes sense. All right, so first, why does this scene matter? Truly, why is a vision with a bunch of animals on a sheet, reptiles, birds, all these other, why does that matter? Truthfully, who cares, right? I mean, think that through for a minute. Why is this vision so significant? Why is it critical for us to understand this and connect this to this account and the larger account that's coming for the the next several chapters, truly? Here it is. Here's the point. The vision commanding Peter to eat unclean animals announces something. It declares something. It declares that God has now opened the way to interaction between Jew and Gentile. Now, what I want you to grasp is the vision about the animals and lunch is not about food and lunch. There's a bigger truth that God wants to communicate to Peter. There is a more significant truth that God wants Peter to grasp. And there's a more significant truth he wants you to grasp. There is no longer this divide between people, people groups. There is no more reason for bias within the human Race. Paul is literally going to address this as he speaks later on in the book. And he's going to say in one of his talks, I believe it's in Athens, he says, hey, listen, we're all, every single nation is from one guy. We're all one people. Now, for some of us, we may say in our mind, well, that's not true. There's races. No, not, not according to scripture. We all come from the same guy, right? Adam. So it's imperative that we see the breaking down here of barriers, biases. That gets undone here. And that is so significant because guess where it leaves you if it doesn't get undone? On the outside looking in. This opens the way for you and for me as followers of Jesus. So Peter's going to go on to fully expound this later on, and we'll get there in a minute. Chapter 11, he's going to come back to it again. When he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to bring this vision back up. He is literally going to explain the opening of the gospel to Gentiles through this vision. In chapter 15, when they have a big discussion about it, the whole church in Jerusalem, all the apostles, and James speaks to it. Guess what Peter's going to bring up? This vision. This vision sets the tone. For opening, relieving, undoing all the barriers that have always been there between Jew and Gentile. And much of our New Testament, many times, Paul addresses this, Ephesians 2, remember that? Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, he says, look, there shouldn't be anything between Jew and Gentile. That should not exist anymore. God has undone that. How? When? Here. Right here. So as we transition, we transition to, once again, and note this, this is interesting, 
Peter now going to Cornelius. Now, a couple other things are significant. Now, I want you to remember this. Mark, as he writes his gospel, who is informing Mark as he writes? Who, who's, the, who's the voice behind the gospel of Mark? It's Peter. Now, interestingly enough, in Mark chapter 7, when Jesus is speaking about the food laws, Mark puts in parentheses in chapter 7, verse 19, God declared all foods clean. Now, what's fascinating to me is if Peter's the voice behind that, Peter's likely saying, hey, remember, God declared all these foods clean and Mark puts it in there. You know what I mean? Yeah, I remember. Yeah, I remember you talking about that, Peter. He, write, he writes this in. That's unique to Mark's gospel. And his comment likely reflects Peter's influence. Think about the food practices that, as Paul addresses them. In Romans 14, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says food is what? It's a conscience issue. It's not, it's not a law thing anymore. It's a conscience issue. He says the same thing similarly about circumcision. It's no longer of any consequence. It's not about circumcision. You're not right with God because of circumcision or what you eat. Colossians addresses that. Now that's all significant because that was part of the distinction for the Jewish people with Gentiles. It was the food laws. If you go to Israel today, guess what? It's still food. It's still related to food laws, right? That's still a distinction. So that's why this is so significant. Now, interestingly enough, Senga Temple Judaism, the discussion, the anticipation of Messiah also anticipated that when he came, all the animals in the world that were previously unclean would be declared clean, which is fascinating to me. There's this mindset that certain things are going to come and then Jesus comes and they happen. And I think, how did they not get it? But truthfully, sometimes, how do we not get it? Right? I mean, folks, honestly, at times, we're as blind as they were because it's not what we do. It's not the way we do it. That's why the word is so important to understand so it can reshape and reorient the way that we think. Okay, so look with me. And I, I love this because think about this. This truth is what makes a way for you to be redeemed, or at least to be considered by the early church. It's this. You're part of this because of accounts like this one. How amazing is that? Okay, verse 17. So Peter's going to go to Cornelius initially, initially, and I love this because I don't know about you, but have you ever come across a truth in Scripture and you're like, man, that doesn't make sense. I know there's something there, but that doesn't make sense yet. I, I, I can't figure it out. I don't know what's going on. Guess what? Peter, God speaks to Peter, and Peter is, verse 17, he's perplexed. Verse 19, he's pondering, right? Peter is really working this thing over in his head. What does this mean? What is going on with this? Right? That's where Peter's at. So he's confused. He doesn't understand. He's pondering. Well, these guys show up. And Peter is so still kind of entranced with trying to figure this out. The Spirit speaks to him and says, hey, there's three guys at the gate looking for you. Go, go out there and greet them. Right? Right? Um, 
which I find fascinating. Peter, I guess his wife wasn't there to tell him that because that's what usually happens when somebody shows up at our house, right? Hey, Dave, you need to go greet those people, you know? Well, here the Spirit does that for Peter. Hey, go greet these guys. Peter invites them to stay with him, and they tell him the whole scenario, what has happened, uh, the vision that Cornelius has, who Cornelius is. Now, all of this is interesting because look down now at verse, the end of verse 23. So the next day, he, Peter, he rose and he went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. Now, I find that interesting. First of all, there's already believers in Joppa. So some of the believers in Joppa, they say, hey, Peter, we're going to come with you. Who? How many? Six. Now, listen, six come with him, including Peter. That's seven. There's three that came to get Peter. That's ten. Listen, that's witnesses. These are witnesses to what's going to happen, to what did happen, to what God's about to do. These are witnesses. And the witnesses are telling Luke, who likely, he was not there, but he heard the story. And he records it for us, right, from the witnesses, which is amazing. Verse 24. And so on the following day, they entered Caesarea. So it took them another day to get there. And Cornelius, he's expecting them. And, and he's, he's so excited. He's called together relatives and close friends. He's got a house full of people, right? They're, they're there. They're ready to meet Peter. They're excited to meet Peter. And so when Peter enters, Cornelius, he, he met him and he fell down at his feet and he worships Peter. And Peter lifts him up and he says, stand up. I too am a man. And I want you to note this. This is small, but it does need to be noted. When men accept undo worship and praise, we're in trouble. And you're in trouble if you listen to him. Because when Peter gets that, what's he say? No, 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 you got the wrong guy. <laughs> God deserves that. Jesus deserves that. Not me. Stand up, bud. Stand up. I, I'm, I'm, you don't, don't worship me. I'm not worthy. He goes on, verse 28, 27. And as he talked with him, Cornelius, he's talking with Peter, he went in and he found many persons gathered and he says to them, this is Peter, now think about this, perplexed, pondering, look at what Peter says, verse 27, look at the 28, and he says to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or to visit anyone of another nation, but... God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Stop. Peter figured it out. You see? Peter got it. The food dream is about the Gentiles. And I'm not supposed to call them common or unclean anymore. Now, Peter's going to expound that in the verses to come, verses 34 and following, and we'll get there. There's no way we could touch it today, which all of you already know, right? There's no way we're getting there today. But this is Peter's response, and this is his conclusion from verse 17 and 19, now down to verse 28. He, he got it. The two-day trip, the staying overnight, the travel, he now meets, he got it. And truthfully, this is how God works. Sometimes we're thick. I am. Probably you are, if you're honest. If you're not honest, okay, you're not thick. But you are, right? So am I. Peter gets it, and he obeys. And that's the key. When you get it, do you obey? Verse 29. 
So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And, and I'll tell you, I can't fathom hearing this, right? Listen to what Cornelius says. And Cornelius says, okay, four days ago, here's what happened. About this hour, I was praying in my house, the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me, an angel in bright clothing, and he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered by God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner who lives by the sea. So I sent for you at once. And you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all, all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Listen, can you imagine ever saying to a preacher in your life, we are all here to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Can you imagine that message? Wow! Wouldn't you love that? I mean, I don't know that you would love that. I would love that! You know what I mean? Oh, tell us everything! You know? And Peter, we'll look at this next week. Peter lets them have it. Peter explains it to them. And they receive it into the chapter. And Peter goes back to Jerusalem, chapter 11, and he says, folks, this is real. This is for the Gentiles. And we need to be aware of that. We need to be thinking about that. And from there, that message continues to spread. It's amazing. It truly is. It's amazing. And it begins here with this vision with Peter. And this vision with Cornelius. So a couple of things to contemplate briefly as we conclude. Are you anticipating hearing from God? As you approach God's word personally, privately, corporately, are you anticipating hearing from God? And listen to me. Are you anticipating obeying? Do you think in your mind, as I engage with the truth, I want to hear it and I want to obey. God, will you strengthen me to obey? Folks, in truth, for many of us, as we approach the word, you know what our thought is? It's good that I'm staying awake. Is it? Is that enough? Is that God's expectation? I just want you to stay awake. Or is God's expectation that we would have the heart that Cornelius demonstrates here? We want to hear all that God has for us and we want to do it. We want to obey it. We want to follow it. We want to understand it. Is that your heart as you approach God's word? Are you anticipating God speaking? Are you listening? Are you ready to receive it? God is at work. Throughout this entire account, God is at work. You can see it in every occurrence, in the healings, in Lydda and Joppa, in the angel to Cornelius, in God speaking, his vision to Peter. The Spirit telling him that three guests are there. God is hovering over this entire process. God is at work. And God is at work advancing the gospel message, the good news. Listen to me. God is still at work today. He is. Do you believe that? He's still at work in your life. He's still at work in this body. 
But folks, in truth, he's at work in bodies all over the world. Yesterday, for us. Today. Tomorrow, for us. The truth is, God is at work. Do you believe that? Have you seen it? Do you want to? Are you looking? In all three accounts, we have either Jews or Gentiles coming to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. We have God-fearing people coming to know Jesus personally as Savior. Do you know Jesus today personally as your Savior? If not, you can. God is drawing men to Himself, and He's doing that drawing work. He's doing it through Jesus. He's doing it through His life. He's doing it through His death. He's doing it through His resurrection, His sacrifice for sin. God is at work. Do you believe it? Gandhi's conclusion following his interaction with the church was this. I like the New Testament. I like your Christianity. But I do not like your Christians. Is that us? Are there biases that prevent us from genuinely showing the love of Jesus? From genuinely accepting some that we would look at and say, they're unclean or common. I don't want to get my hands dirty with them. How do we look at others? How do we engage others? What's our response? One commentator made this observation, and it is, it is jarring in some, in some respects. He said, prejudice or elitism on the lips of a believer is an obscenity. Whether it's racial or national or cultural or social. Remember what James says in James 2.1, my brothers as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Biases of this kind, simply put, are not Christian. They don't reflect the character of Jesus. And they fail miserably to display his love for all humanity. So what about us today? What about you? Are you struggling with those kind of biases? Are you struggling with that perception of others? If you are, there's grace. And folks, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, all of us, at some level, to some extent, we struggle with that. Certain folks we see and we're immediately, maybe it's just inside, we struggle. What's your response? God, give me grace to love them. Give me grace to care for them. Give me grace to have compassion on them. That, that person is hurting. Give me grace to show them Jesus. That ought to be our heart and our longing. Why? Because Jesus came to seek and to save the lost.